You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. I'm Simon Burton and welcome to the Art Dimension with Cambridge Arts Roundup. This week we'll be hearing about Japanese goblins who teach men how to fight, preview a play about a tragic disaster, hear about a book on how electricity can shock and fascinate beyond all imagining, and visit an artist with more than a little zing in her work. In this edition, we visit Dr Christine Williams at Cambridge University Library and delve into the world of the art of the samurai in a new exhibition on their multifaceted lives. Scientific historian Patricia Farrer joins us once again to tell the incredible story of electricity and the Enlightenment, featured in her book An Entertainment for Angels. We visit a playwright who's written an emotive play tackling one of the worst disasters ever to hit Britain, Abba Fan, as we move into an age of tragic disasters which may indeed touch our own lives. We hear from students at Cambridge University Ukrainian Society who claim important works by artist Maria Primachenko, who was admired by Picasso, have been devastated by Russian shelling of a museum at Ivankiv in the Kiviv region. And Polish artist and designer Isabella Ilmielsek entertains us as her new exhibition in Norfolk Street and tells us why we should be excited about our lives and express it in art. What would you do if you were given a Japanese artwork and manuscript archive of over 130,000 valuable objects and given the choice of just 60 objects in order to tell the fascinating story of the samurai? Well, you'd need to be something of an expert with an angle in mind that wasn't based on the received Hollywood stereotypes. The task was presented to Dr Christine Williams, head of the Japanese and Korean section of Cambridge University Library, who's created a new exhibition, Samurai History and Legend, which runs until the 28th of May. The word samurai suggests higher-ranking Japanese warriors around the 12th to 16th century, or a member of the military ruling class in the 17th to 19th centuries. It essentially means to serve the nobility in positions of authority. The true picture of samurai and the myths and legends surrounding them are often at odds with each other and the show seeks to question the assumptions we hold from popular culture and film and instead show the multifaceted lives samurai lived with their families through books, biographies, music, heraldry and artwork rather than weaponry and armour though there is material such as military helmets and scrolls instructing us on sword making. On the way in, I pleasantly found a Japanese lady in full kimono browsing the artefacts and lending some authentic atmosphere in the library basement, which also contains a bookcase full of works donated by the Emperor Hirohito. The legacy of material, much of which has never been seen before, details tales of love and rebellions and traditions through the ages, and everything from the secrets of flower arranging to the Buddhist text Lotus Sutra. Curator Christine Williams, whose PhD focused on children's literature in the 17th and 19th century Japan at Harvard University, introduces the exhibition. Tell me a little bit about what you've got behind the scenes here and how you came to making the decisions you did about it. 
I think that really was one of the hardest parts narrowing it down. I felt like we could have done an exhibition on almost any topic, but we thought the the idea of samurai is something that a lot of people in the UK are familiar with, uh, but maybe there's more we can explore about it and some of the images you see on television or in video games don't really line up with the images you see in the material that, that we have here in the library that's actually from there and you know I don't expect people to come and suddenly know all about Japanese history but I hope that they come and find out more than they knew or come away with new questions and things they want to learn more about. Um, what era of history does it encompass? Um, where does it go for start and, begin and end at? The oldest object in the in the exhibition is from the late the late 11th century. So uh, the the objects in the exhibition uh, range from the late 11th century up to the end of the 19th century. We have uh, I've focused especially on the period around the Genpei Wars, which were the late 12th century. But the books we have about that uh, were generally printed bit later in the in the 17th century. What exactly was their position in society? How, how, how would you describe that? In the late 12th century, you have the power in Japan, the political power shifting from the nobility to uh, samurai, to, to warrior families. The samurai are um, very prominent, especially from the 12th century into the late 19th century they they were eliminated as a as a class made into civilians in the 1870s so that's kind of the end of the story uh, as far as the exhibition is concerned is there any secret societies in japan that still maintain samurai philosophy and things like that because you still have shaolin monks who pop up on um, youtube and um, tell you all about um, the, the 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 mysteries of kung fu and things like that um are there is there any secret societies in japan where they still try to maintain samurai nobility and codes of honor and all that kind of thing I wouldn't be surprised, but I'm really the wrong person to ask about secret societies in Japan today. I, my, um, my research has mainly been on the Edo period, which is this uh, 17th to 19th century, which is also where uh, a lot of the material in the collection and, and in the exhibition is. But I think one of the reasons that I didn't want to include too much about the 20th century is that the after the samurai disappear in reality, they they come up a lot in philosophy and ideas about the spirit of Japan and, and the, these ideas about the samurai get mixed in with the ideology of, of wartime and then post-war and it gets pretty complicated and pretty far from from I, th I think the historical roots. So can, can you tell me about both about their everyday lives? What did they yeah. do? In the um, in the earlier period, the the um, medieval and and late classical period uh, that the, the exhibition starts with, um, I tried to bring out some of the religious aspects of life. Uh, we have a copy of the Lotus Sutra that's all written in gold, and you know that they, they would be chanting sutras for uh, spiritual merit and and uh, in hopes of success that sort of thing. We also have uh, some things related to music 
There were people who were samurai who played the flute uh, or, or arranged flowers. Things. It's a beautiful exhibit, the scroll where, which teaches you how to arrange flowers, which yeah. was a secret scroll as well. It's a, it's a secret scroll. It's not, not very secret anymore. It's on our digital library. But it was passing down knowledge from the master to the disciple. And that, that scroll isn't a samurai item itself, but, but the samurai were later on uh, practicing flower arranging. And, and that, that piece is special because it's one of the first uh, written records that survives of flower arranging. To go, to go back to your question about uh, what daily life was like, when you get into the 17th century, we know a lot more about their daily lives. And they would have been, from a very young age, spending a lot of time learning to read and write. And uh, that, that was a big part of what you needed to do if you've got thousands of characters in Chinese to read. Uh, then you need to start early. Um, in your PhD, you, you studied Japanese children um, uh, in in the past. Um, in, 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 uh, was there a period that you looked at them? I, I looked at the 17th through 19th centuries. Um, so what was the experience of women and children in samurai households? Is there something that you can tell us about that? Literacy was was a big part. Women were expected to be able to teach their children at least vernacular uh, literacy. And then if you were, as a man, you would have been expected to have a higher level of Chinese learning. But they would be expected to also compose poetry. Um, um, and are there, in, in these artworks, which I've had a look around, and they're absolutely splendid, fantastically crisp quality, um, antiquated artworks of great value, they're absolutely wonderful. Do they depict love stories as well? There's also love stories in there. Uh, one of the most famous samurai, Minamoto no Yoshitsune, who was in that late 12th century period, you have various stories of, of these ladies that he knew, uh, one who was very loyal and followed him in, when he went into exile, and other times when he uh, stole a woman's heart to have access to her father's secret scroll of Chinese military secrets. I think as, as you get farther from the period when samurai were actually fighting, mm. so in the 17th century they weren't really fighting anymore after the middle of uh, the 17th century. In, in that period, the stories about the past become even bigger. Uh, the stories about uh, the, the battles and every, everything become much grander when, when you're in a time of peace and it's... Uh, it's a different situation. So in the theater, in art, uh, in the ukiyo-e, uh, you have these very um, flamboyant images and and elaborate love stories and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, the, the, there's a great um, artwork there, the attack on the Ido mansion, which obviously um, gives you that feeling of, of violent rebellions, plots and legendary right. scrapes and everything. Can you describe that piece of... Um, uh, you you might have heard of the forty seven Ronin or the forty seven samurai. That it, there's some movies. Um, so in this time of peace, there was a famous vendetta that happened, and it was shocking at the time because samurai weren't really expected to be uh, actively using their swords uh, in in that way. But uh, the um, head of a samurai household was in a dispute, pulled out his sword in the wrong place, and then had to um, uh, commit ritual suicide. His followers, who then had lost their places, blamed the person he was in the dispute with, and then plotted over the course of many months to take their revenge, which they... So the, the artwork shows them in a 
in the winter, climbing over the houses in the snow to uh, to attack mm. at night when everyone was sleeping. And it's, I mean, there wouldn't really have been that much snow, but in the theater and in art, things get a mm. bit more dramatic. I think when you're in a time of peace, you take it for granted. And and I, I think that's, that's part of why the... Um, the images of samurai and of warfare battles can be so beautiful and flamboyant in this period in Japan because they never saw them. Hmm. The people who were um, the people who were making this artwork and making the the wonderful um, theatrical plays about samurai, these were stories of the past. By that point, there were samurai, but. But they were more like civil servants. They were composing poetry. They were working on maybe archery and and military skills, but in a more martial arts type of way, and not, you know, not actually um, being in battles. And I, I, uh, I, I, I saw like an interesting that. image there of um, people dressed up in samurai clothing with the the heads of animals. Um, so that was quite interesting. And th- there was also another image there which I thought was. Um, Worth talking about, which was this um, this person who could perform amazing feats, who'd learnt them from a goblin um, up oh, a mountain yeah. and things like that, and this person who could fly down the mountain. Um, tell me about those images because they're quite interesting. Yeah, that the um, there's some books from the late nineteenth century, which again is, is sort of after the um, samurai have have been disbanded but playfully uh dealing with the the tradition so we have one with um that that's titled cat theater so you have cats uh dressed up in kimono with the swords and uh and and i think that one is it's just it's purely playful the ones with the um then i think we have a couple of books uh, from the japanese fairy tale series that was uh, again published late 19th century where you have I think monkeys um, dressed up as samurai and uh, some other they're part of folk tales but being being imagined with those kinds of costumes Again. Dr Christine Williams head of Japanese and Korean section at Cambridge University Library thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105 it's been most interesting thank you for coming A flash of lightning often suddenly wakes us up to the possibility of the divine and fascinating nature of electricity, especially if it hits something near you with a bang. During the Enlightenment in the 18th century, electricity was the fashion of the age amongst scientists, and there was much to tell on the subject, as I discovered with Cambridge University's scientific historian and prize-winning author Patricia Farrer. Her book, An Entertainment for Angels, Electricity in the Enlightenment, plugged me into a story which has to be told because of the strange goings-on in an age of Shelley's Frankenstein when scientists tried just about everything from electrifying people, fish and frogs to work out the many properties and uses of electricity. We've come today to talk about um, another book which you've written, which I've been reading and found absolutely fascinating, which is entitled An Entertainment for Angels, Electricity in the Enlightenment, which I had absolutely no idea was such an absolutely riveting subject. Um, how did you come to be writing that? 
Well, precisely because it is riveting. And I love the title, An Entertainment for Angels. That's a quotation from a book about a young woman and her brother. And every term, her brother went off to university and then he came back in the holidays and he taught her all the physics that he'd learnt. And when they got to the electricity section, it's the best bit of the whole book. Because by then, a machine had been invented that could glow in the dark. And I was once in an experiment in Oxford. A friend of mine had recreated an 18th century electrical machine using 18th century wood and saws and screws and all that sort of thing. And we sat in a windowless room in the middle of the Clarendon Laboratory in Oxford. And my job was to rotate a glass globe. And nothing happened for ages. And we suddenly realised I was doing it too fast. And I rotated the globe more slowly. And eventually this sort of purple and green light flickered across the inside of the globe. And I see electric light every single day of my life, but it was such a stunning experience to see this eerie light coming out of nowhere. And if you were an 18th century person dependent on candles, it must have just been absolutely mind-blowing to see an artificial light like that. Um, now, there's a quotation in your book which says, according to Mary Shelley, science would find a way to keep poor people warm in the, in the coldest of winters. And this was a thought inspired by the fact that electricity um, perhaps had the answer to things which were completely um, unknowable at the time and terribly exciting. Well, people were terribly optimistic. They thought that they could use electricity to make plants grow better, to produce better fruit. There was a lot of electrical medicine. Um, there were, and also there was a hope that you could have central heating from electricity, which actually we do now, but they never managed it in the 18th century. Electricity was the single greatest thing that happened during the Well, I think Newtonian people will probably say that gravity was the greatest invention, if you count that as an invention. (laughs) Electricity was the one that gripped people in the 18th century, and it wasn't just people in scientific laboratories. This really was, as that young woman said, an entertainment for angels, and lecturers went out and they performed all sorts of shows with... Uh, sparkling light, uh, sparkling waterfalls and electric kisses and flaming brandy and knives and forks that gave you an electric shock when you picked them up. And it was just stunning. Nobody had any idea. They'd never seen anything like this before. And of course, it did eventually have useful applications. But I think during the 18th century, it was just an enormous source of wonder and optimism about what other powers in God's world would be revealed in the future. Now now you kick off with the the figure of Benjamin Franklin. Mm. Um, Who was he and why is he so important? Well Benjamin Franklin was a very famous American politician. He's famous because he worked on the Declaration of Independence. He went over to Paris and he was important in the French Revolution and although he was a printer he made a lot of money and he, he initiated this idea that you should always economize and save and work very hard and one day someone sent him an electrical glass wand from England and he started experimenting with it and he was so fascinated that he spent much of the rest of his life experimenting on electricity and his most important invention is the lightning rod on the top of tall buildings even now there's a tall sort of metal spike so that if there's a lightning storm instead of destroying the building the lightning gets conducted down the lightning rod then down 
down a wire down through the building and discharges safely into the ground. That was a phenomenally important invention. Uh, it was um, an age of wonder for scientists. What was going on at the beginning of the era of, of the Enlightenment, the age of reason? Uh, I think the spirit of the age was enormously optimistic. People, had, people doing scientific experiments had a double goal. They wanted to know more about the world and they wanted to improve the human condition within it. So everything had that double aim. And as a sort of, not exactly a sideline, a lot of people wanted to make a lot of money as well. How important was technology um, for things like diplomatic kudos for people like Franklin? Because um, having the latest gadget was very fashionable, wasn't it? Oh, well, it was. And uh, he entertained his guests. He, he suggests, I don't know if this actually ever happened, but what he suggested was having a dinner party where they, they would roast a turkey for Thanksgiving dinner on an electric spit. But I don't think that particular one ever happened. But... It was exciting. He, he was also very interested in electrical medicine. Um, what he and a lot of other people did was practice uh, on people who had no way of answering back, practicing on women, practicing on servants. Um, occasionally they practiced on, on themselves, but they were a bit more careful about that. There was a wonderful story about uh, a professor from Germany who went to Paris to try out the latest electrical experiment, and he got a huge electric shock. And he got this terrible headache that lasted for about three days and he wanted to find out exactly how it worked so he recruited his wife and subjected her to exactly the same experience which is exactly the sort of thing men did in those days. Um, uh, what was the, um, I mean it was, it was, it seemed to me to be um, very charismatic and glamorous to be a scientist um, experimenting with um, electricity because you, you were kind of in a kind of a, a, an elite class, weren't you? What was the what was the political ideology at the time? Basically? Well, I, I think if you were an experimenter, a performer, um, you were in an elite class. But quite often there were people who had to work very hard to earn, earn their own living. One way of thinking about it, and the same is true of medicine, is to think of it on a, as a spectrum. So at the one end you've got the professional doctors, the people who belong to the uh, Royal Society, and they were elite performers. But then, then there's a sort of gradual scale down to people who were desperately trying to um, build a career for themselves, and they had to sort of flog around the province as carrying out electrical performances uh, for very little money and it was a very uncertain way of earning your living. Now there were only two universities at the time, weren't they, Oxford and Cambridge, but people learned about this through journals, didn't they? Um, that's how many of these entrepreneurs with electricity actually came by their knowledge um, that they then exploited. If you wanted to learn about science, Oxford and Cambridge were not the places to go to. At Oxford and Cambridge they still had the medieval Aristotelian syllabus. If you wanted to know about science, you could go to the dissenting academies, which is where you learnt about mathematics, or you could you could go to some of these lectures and performances, or this was also a time uh, when an increasing number of books were being published, so that there was a lot of self-help, a lot of self-study. Um, there's a quote in your book which says, uh, people often claim that they are living in an enlightened age when a bright flame dispelled the dark cloud of ignorance and superstition. How true was that? 
Well, people loved metaphors. I mean, it was, in a sense, it was literally true. Uh, London and Paris had streetlights. London, London was the sort of most illuminated city in the world. Gas lights, not, not electric lights. But, I mean, it, I think this image of the light dispelling the darkness is a very, very potent one. And, of course, we often say... I see when actually what we mean is I understand. So it's got a lot of religious Im- imagery as well, the, the idea that Christ is going to, to light the way. Um, uh, a lot of people felt that the Bible was being um, replaced by science in the physical world and the way that people were behaving. And there was a kind of backlash, wasn't there, um, from um, from the religious side of society who felt that the the, 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 the limelight was being stolen from religion by these, these electronic science. Yeah. I, I think um, what religious people thought was wrong was making money from something that had been created by God. But natural philosophers, men like Isaac Newton is an absolutely superb example. Newton didn't try to dispel God from the universe. He was a deeply religious man. And for him, the whole point of studying science, of studying the natural world, was to learn more about God's plan for the universe. So I think it was later, it was more on the continent and more in the 19th century that there was this tension between religion and science. In the 18th century, they went together. Now there was um, Francis Hawksby tried to carry on Newton's ideas, didn't he, or work with them? Um, what, what, was, what was his? Uh, oh, Francis uh, Hawksby's very interesting because he he wasn't a wealthy man. He wasn't an educated man. He was a draper. Um, he made silk cloth, and he was in his thirties when he was recruited by Newton to devise experiments to show at the Royal Society every week. And it was Hawkesby who invented the first electrical machine, which is a glass globe, which uh, the air's been taken out of the globe, so there's a semi-vacuum. You turn the globe very, very quickly. Someone has their hands on the outside of the globe, and the air inside starts to glow. That was the first electrical machine. A great deal of amusement came from electrical machines of one sort or another. People did things like charging people's bodies up so that they began to glow. One of them was to do it with a, a woman. If you charged a woman up and then kissed her on the lips, you got a bit of a buzz through, through your lips. That was called the kissing Venus. And another thing they did was they borrowed some children from the local orphanage and they used to hang these children up by ropes from the ceiling so the child was hanging horizontally and then they charged up the little boy they did it with girls as well they charged the child up and then if you touch someone else touched the child there would be a spark of electricity you'd go ouch and you'd see the flash of lightning and also the child's hands would pick up feathers and light uh, bits of metal leaf and things like that because the child was completely charged up. Now they found that women actually conduct electricity better than men, don't they, in their bodies? So why was that? Was there an answer? I'm not sure if that's true. I think that's one of the things that they observed and that they said was true. But there did, there was very little was known precisely. There was one experiment which happened when they put a, a lot of people standing in a big circle and then they fired them up electrically and the electric charge went round the circle and as it reached each person, each person jumped up. And there was a group of people who didn't jump up very much and it was a long while before anyone realised that there was nothing wrong with the people. It was because they were standing on a patch of wet ground. 
<laughs> um, Peter van Muschenbroek, with his Leyden jar, almost killed himself developing um, a capacitor, didn't he? And that was the shock of his life, but it was also an electronic triumph, wasn't it? Well, it was. This was in the middle of the 18th century, and he... What he did was develop what's called the Leyden jar, which is a capacitor, and that meant that electric charge could be stored and carried from one place to another. But when he was developing it, he gave himself a huge electrical shock, and then he wrote to all the electrical experts in Paris, and he told them what he'd done, and he said, whatever you do, don't ever attempt this yourself, because it's so dangerous, and you shouldn't ever try it. But of course, what he really meant was, look, just give it a go. That was an open invitation for them to try it. And they did, and they replicated what he'd done, and it was called the Leyden Jar, because he worked at the University of Leyden, and that made a huge difference to electricity. Now, now a rush of electronic um, gadgets um, hit the market as very, very vogue, didn't they, um, during that, that whole period. Um, and there was um, a, a cartoon um, in one of the journals uh, about an instant when a man touched a, a doorbell which had been wired up with electricity and a little poem came out about it. Would you like to read the poem or shall I? No, you, you read the poem. Before you read it, let me say that it is absolutely extraordinary that people took got so much enjoyment for get, seeing somebody have an electric shock and get knocked down in the street. Okay, here's the poem. The Count attacked the enchanted wire, unconscious of the latent fire, which held him prostrate on the stones, screaming aloud, My bones, my bones! Benjamin Franklin's career um, took off and he became, um, to many people, an incarnation of Prometheus, didn't he? Oh, that's right, because he, uh, Prometheus was the man, well, the, the Greek god in the myths, who, who drew lightning from the sky and infused life into, into inert matter, which was a, a bit huge presumption on God's own power. I mean, it's, but that's why Frankenstein is called the second Prometheus. And Franklin was a great democrat. He wanted to give more power to the people. And so in France, he was revered as the man who's drawn a lightning from the sky and the scepter from the tyrant. So electricity and politics were quite closely linked together. In fact, I mean, the whole of science and politics were linked together. So the antagonism between England and France. And electricity was seen as a, a potentially a very re revolutionary instrument. Um, there was also um, um, speculation that there may be a divine element in electricity and also the fact that it could be used for medical applications for actually curing people. Could a jolt of electricity potentially cure just about anything? <laughs> They're wide and varied, aren't they, the theories about that? Um, well, it was very obvious that electricity affected your body, so that people did carry out experiments, and quite often it seemed to work. I mean, this was the days there were no antibiotics, there were no real really effective drugs. Nobody knew what was happening. A lot of people had chronic ailments, and of course they flocked to try out a new treatment and sometimes people got better and so every single doctor who was practicing could provide a list of affidavits to, to show well this cured me of my paralysis or you know my spots went away or I stopped feeling sick or whatever it was uh, but of course there were no real controlled trials but there was a hospital in London an electrical hospital that was open for about three years and claimed to cure a lot of people. Uh, Henry Cavendish was a strong figure with his mathematical and electrical theories. Where does he fit in? Oh, well, he, he made an imitation electric eel. 
And uh, he made it out of leather and laden jars and he wired it up and he, he put his electric eel in a tub of water and he got all his friends to come round and then he got his friends to dip their hands into the water and then he turned on the electric eel and of course they got a huge shock. Galvani said that the electricity in animals is different from the electricity in machines. And Alessandro Volta, after whom the Volta is named, Alessandro Volta said, no, the electricity in machines is the same as electricity in living creatures. And he tested that out by building the first battery called a pile, and he put little electric, um, chemical, electric metal plates on either side of his tongue. So he made himself part of the electric circuit. But Aldini, uh, was Galvani's nephew and he he basically he did the experiments that Galvani had done on frogs he did them on human people and the only kinds of body that you could get hold of were uh, criminals who'd recently been hung so a poor man called Forster was taken down from the gallows this was in London and Aldini applied a whacking great um, electric charged to him and this poor man who was dead sort of jolted up and apparently his eyes stared out of his head and his jaw came open and it's very close to the descriptions in Frankenstein so it seems fairly obvious that Mary Shelley had, had read about this. Uh, yes I mean that seemed to me to be the, the source of one of the most wonderful tales in English literature which is Frankenstein of course um, which is um, in, in many ways, you know, um, a mar marvellous leap in the imagination from this um, electricity and the enlightenment, this whole theme to, for it to turn into this wonderful piece of literature. Yeah. It's interesting, Shelley never actually mentions electricity. She, le she leaves it very vague exactly how this body was put together and came to, came to life. But of course, there were huge debates at the, at the time about, they were called the vitalism debates, about whether you can create life from inert molecules or whether there has to be some sort of spirit um, infused by God. And I think we're no nearer resolving that debate. Crick and Watson famously said that they'd solved the secret of life when they unraveled the DNA molecule, but we still can't create life, however near we get to it. We've, it's never actually been achieved yet. Patricia Fowler, thank you for an absolutely fascinating discussion on electricity and the Enlightenment. Your book is entitled An Entertainment for Angels, Electricity and the Enlightenment. And it was another absolutely fantastic read and we're going to have a look at another book on Darwin um, next time. Probably. The other Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who was also a great proponent of evolution and I think he had an enormous influence on his grandson that we need to think about more carefully. The whole subject of dealing with tragic disasters personally is currently uppermost in our thoughts after the devastation witnessed during the recent storms, Covid and the lives suddenly lost, not to mention World War Three apparently gathering steam on the horizon with the madness of Putin's war. Perhaps it's time for the world to reflect on how appalling actually dealing with a life-changing event yourself can be. And this theme arises in a new play entitled Hear Wraith, due to be staged next year by writer Sue Betham on Britain's worst ever coal mining disaster at Aberfan in 1966. Sue was actually there in person as a local 10-year-old first aider, handing out tea and biscuits and bandaging rescuers and survivors. 
A writer, theatre maker and workshop leader, Sue was winner of the Alpine Fellowship International Theatre Prize in 2020 and the Yeovil Literary Prize in 2021. The play is due to be staged in autumn 2023 in Wales and later in England. You wrote this um, play, which it sounds to me, um, it, it, it strikes a chord in today's world because um, so many people are having to deal with the tragic, the disastrous side of life. Um, tell me a little bit um, about this um, ultimate disaster story um, in Abafan where um, a, a, a coal slag tip collapsed onto a school. T- tell me what happened. Well, it was horrendous. There'd been, so it was 1966 and the 21st of October, a tip which should not have been as tall as it was. The regulation suggested that coal tips should be 20 feet high. This one was 100 feet high and that they should certainly not be built on a spring. And this was built on effectively a spring, which became a stream. After heavy rainfall for weeks, the the entire coal tip slid very rapidly onto mainly um, the local school. Most of the children who were killed were around the age of eight, nine, ten. Um, 116 children were killed and 144 people altogether including some of their teachers who tried to protect them by standing between them and this oncoming landslide. It was the worst mining disaster we've had in the UK and horrendous as, you know, compared with any other disasters that we've had in the UK, particularly because there were so many children involved. So there'd been plenty of warnings. There had been letters backwards and forwards, there'd been petitions, but it was it but it happened in the middle of a whole series of pit closures across across Wales. And there was a degree of reluctance to too many people to put their heads above the parapets because they were afraid that they would go on the list for closure if they were to create too much fuss about this threat that they never could have imagined would be as enormous as it turned out to be. Um, it was totally tragic because um, th- there are accounts of parents literally digging children out of the slag with their bare with their hands. Bare hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, that shocking reality um, is something that, that it, it, it hit the national imagination yeah. as something that was absolutely, truly appalling. What's the synopsis of your play? What does it cover? Because it's just a very sensitive issue um, in many ways, isn't it? It is really sensitive. And we're working with the Abavan and the Valleys community in rolling it out. Mm. So we're in the middle of a consultation period now with them and working alongside survivors of Abavan. The play tells the story, to actually tells the story as, as opposed to trying in any way to perform it. And then towards the end, one of the men says, everything changed that day. And another guy says, nothing changed that day. And there is this dialectic between the two about how things can so fundamentally change for an individual in a moment. And their lives are turned upside down with the national and international issue of putting profit before people and late modern capitalism and the the threats to our lives when we ignore all the warnings just as we do in Grenfell. So the play comes through Hillsborough and Grenfell and looks to the future and actually finally ends up looking at the fact that right now there are a thousand coal tips in the Welsh Valleys and 327 have been found to be category D risk of sliding which means the highest risk without them having slid 
two of the tips slid in the last 18 months. So it's a call to, the play is a good old piece of 1970s political theatre and a call to action really for people to stop waiting for other people to tell their stories and tell their narrative and, and is a call for us to reclaim our own narratives and tell our truth about what happened there because so few people know so many of the details of Abervanyu. I'm talking with one of the survivors, Jeanette Bickley, who uh, was pulled out at at, uh, the age of eight and then she was carried home by her parents, having been, you know, dragged out of this pile of slurry. She was put to bed for, I think it was 12 hours. I have in my head 20, but it was a long time um, because she was safe. And then her parents went back because she had a sibling still under that slurry and they wanted to see if both of them were going to come out. The issue of talking about it afterwards came up in the discussion after a reading we had in Abervan recently, where one of the invited audience asked one of the survivors, were you left on your own as a family to deal with this? And she said, we, were to- we children were told we should never speak about this again. And she said, actually, none of us spoke for 50 years. And on the 50th anniversary, when the BBC came back back and made a whole series of documentaries and they made a film um, and consulted and worked alongside the community, that was the first time that these survivors, who by then were 58 and 60 years old, as a group, got together to watch this film. And that was when they began to talk for the first time. So there was one man in the room with her who had been in the same class with her at school mm. and hadn't spoken to her ever about, about what had happened to them. Now, you yourself was, were actually there and went to help at the disaster. Tell me what, how that experience yeah. hit you as a youngster. I was 10 mm-hmm. and I was first aid trained and I was taken over by a neighbour um, to see what I could do. And at the age of 10, all I could do uh, all I'd learned to do was make hospital beds, put plasters on people's arms and, and put someone's arm in a sling if, it, if you thought it was broken. And really, there was nothing I could do except put biscuits on plates, um, make massive pots of tea and wash up dishes when people came into the hall in which the volunteers um, and the rescue services would come to just have a moment and then go back and dig again. So, it, and that, and now a 10 year old would not be allowed within a mile of it, but I was right in the thick of that. One of the most shocking things to come out of it is that 50 pounds per child was the recommended compensation. That in itself is shocking enough. The second <laughs> shocking aspect of that is that there was an attempt to justify it in the sense that, quote, people like that, unquote, would not know what to do with more money. And the third, possibly most shocking thing of all, is that that money was also deemed only to be payable to the families who had been close to the child that had been killed. And I think with this play in particular, because it is really hard, and there are moments where it is incredibly silent and still, and people barely breathe, and to be in the community of others for live theatre in that way, it doesn't do it in the same way with film. 
Mm-hmm. What a great theatre project for exploring all of these issues. Um, Susan, <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you very much indeed for sparing some time to talk to Cambridge 105. I'll come back when the play is out and tell you how it's going. <laughs> that, that sounds wonderful. I look forward to seeing it. Ukrainian students in Cambridge have been highlighting how priceless art treasures are being systematically destroyed by Russian forces in a public protest on King's Parade. Cambridge University Ukrainian Society claim important works by artist Maria Primachenko, who was admired by Picasso, were devastated by Russian shelling of a museum in Ivankiv in the Kviv region, and 25 unique national treasures were incinerated before the remainder were saved and stored. It's claimed the Russians are targeting cathedrals, galleries and cultural centres, and landmarks which were protected by the World Cultural Heritage Lists. Alenka Dmitrik has a PhD in Slavonic Studies at Cambridge University and is Vice President of the Ukrainian Society and is organising daily protests on King's Parade against the occupation. She says art is now an important platform and influencer for the protest. Why is Primachenko's art so important to your protest? What's the significance of it? So Maria Primachenko is dearly loved by every Ukrainian. She was born before the First World War and she lived through two wars and she died in independent Ukraine. She was a self-taught artist and her paintings with their use of color and composition were very much appreciated and admired by international artists such as Pablo Picasso. But Ukrainians love her just because her the content of her paintings, what she was painting, was very close to our hearts. So she did a lot of anti-war paintings. And unfortunately, although they, she did them during the times of the Cold War, they're quite topical now. What's been the reaction of the arts community to what's going on in um, Ukraine? Are they defiant as well? And are they doing things to support the morale of the people? A lot of the artists stayed in Ukraine, stayed in Kiev, in Kharkiv and other cities. My friends are actually artists and they don't give up, they draw, they create poetry and they are expressing their emotions. Currently their emotion is anger. They are not afraid, they are afraid for their lives, but they are not afraid, they already beyond being afraid. They are angry and they demand freedom to Ukraine, they demand the end of the war and they demand world support. Kyiv is protected as a city like by UNESCO and there are several cathedrals that have been under attack in Kyiv. Luckily they survived but what we did at the protest today we showed the artworks of Maria Primachenko and unfortunately her museum near Kyiv has been on fire and some of her works are now destroyed forever. So the message we, we share at the protest every day for all Cambridge people is please write to your MPs, please demand political changes and please donate currently the most welcome donations are money and you can visit the Cambridge University Ukrainian Society Facebook page and you'll find information on how to help as the zing of early spring bursts out with colorful bluebells in the woods it's perhaps time to go out and look for inspiration as an artist and pick up a brush I've been talking to a Polish artist living in Cambridge who's done just that and is exhibiting 16 Impressionist paintings at a gallery in Norfolk Street. Artist and designer Isabella Imielsek draws on a central concept in her Impressionist art which expresses an essentially mindful approach to living. She studied fine arts, television, film and stage design for theatre at Krakow University in Poland and the Academy of Fine Arts and also in the Czech Republic and she's developed a passion for creative design and painting and also making clothing with artwork on it. 
In her Garden of the Imagination show, she finds brimming spiritual excitement in settings such as a swarm of butterflies in a field in Grantchester Meadows, or perhaps looking at a pond full of flowers giving rise to paintings with connotations of Monet. She draws on the Impressionists and paints quickly with a great deal of colourful complexity and oils on canvas, using a knife instead of a brush. In Poland, I, uh, I was an artist, freelancer, and also I was working as a in the stage and costume designer in the in theatres, and I was interior de- de- designer as well, and I was working for commercial clients, design houses for them, and I always was painting. The sex- exhibition combines two things doesn't it because it's it's your artwork but it's yeah. also um, 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 print on cloth as well isn't it? I am inspired by nature the nature is very important for, for me uh, especially a light and colors and the, pro- the, the project has been done I became with an idea to print scarves from the paintings and which is I have done I decided to uh, to make a picture of uh, like um, it was it, it is a small collection of uh, silk scarves which is were transferred from the paintings through the silk. I decided to make also a picture of the scarves in Cornwall. What happens when you paint? You can find uh, in my paintings flowers, trees. Mm, some of my paintings um, I found the inspiration in, in the botanic garden in Cambridge. This is a fantastic place for me where I would love to go and observe the nature. As I said before, the the light of nature and how the light is playing with colors and everything always change. And I'm just absorbed the moments of the every change, which is I can see it. And that's why later in my studio i feel i just feel full of uh, the nature the colors the the dancing uh, of everything and um, i i just painting and it's a really great fun fun for me and um, actually paintings is the way how i express myself perfectly through the feelings how many canvases are there in this exhibition? 16 canvases and the, the big scarves, the silk scarves, it was just seven, the large size of the, the silk scarves and the small was also seven. This is just like my first step, my first collection. I hope that I will find the way. Uh-huh. I'm actually um, finding myself, yes, uh-huh. and uh, very much deep. Yeah my inner like you know just it's it's very hard to because all about is what we are talking now is about feelings Mm. and one of the things that struck me about your art Isabel is that um, it seems to draw on an idea which seems to be becoming increasingly popular as a social trend the whole idea that one must actually live in the present and enjoy and be exhilarated by the life that you're actually living at that moment. And that's important in your art, isn't it? That's actually how it is. And I found uh, the now with the nature and the miracle moments, uh, which is your life. 
and um, you can learn from the nature a lot and um, uh, there is no worries about anything that just uh, everything happened and every single moment and you you can absorb the moments and that's what i'm doing actually and um, i feeling f um, very fullness of an ideas f uh, to to make another pictures and uh, i have many lots of new ideas to 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 create my my pictures and not really only pictures uh, because uh, um, actually also interiors and uh, the scarves and uh, everything I, I, I have found uh, in nature. So, so that kind of mindfulness translates into tremendous artistic excitement in your art, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Isabel, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. Thank you very much. If you're interested to see her work, she's at a private gallery at 11 Norfolk Street and you can email her at isabeldesign78 at gmail.com to arrange a viewing. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Cambridge Arts Roundup. I hope you've enjoyed being with us and we'll tune in again on Cambridge 105 Radio.